You are listening to a sermon from Emmaus Church LCMS. For more information, please go to www.emmauspasco.org. Grace and mercy and peace be to you from God our Father and our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. Who are you? It's a simple enough question, right? We can say a number of things with it. A little kid runs into a nursery and we say, who are you? A friendly greeting. You can also make it a threat, right? Someone comes into your house you don't know and you say, who are you? Or your spouse acts cruelly out of character and you ask in indignation, who are you? Whatever the use we make of it, it's always a response to a problem between a person, their behavior, and their circumstances. And the only solution to this problem is to know their identity. And so we ask, who are you? And this problem of identity, it arises again and again and again in Mark's gospel. And all the way through the first half of Mark's gospel, we find that again and again, Jesus refuses to answer it. And it's kind of weird because he keeps telling other people, don't say anything. In chapter one, he, uh, he casts out a demon and the demon says, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of Israel. And Jesus says, silence, don't tell anyone. In chapter 2, he forgives a man's sins, and some religious leaders say, hey, no one can do that except for God. Who are you to get to do this? And Jesus, instead of answering, he demonstrates his authority to forgive sin. In chapter 3, Jesus' own family sees him collecting disciples and doing miracles and thinks he's lost his mind, and they go to confront him, thinking he's forgotten who he is. In chapter 4, he stills a storm on the Sea of Galilee, and his disciples ask it explicitly, who is this that even the wind and waves obey him? In chapter 6, his hometown, he goes back to his hometown synagogue, and he's teaching, and the people think, where did he get all this? We know who he is. He's a carpenter's son. We know his brothers and sisters. In all of these circumstances, there's a problem between Jesus' behavior and his setting and his identity that push on people this question, who are you? And it looms large in their minds. Sometimes it's concern, sometimes it's curiosity, sometimes it's accusation. So in our text, we are at the middle of Mark's gospel, the turning point. And Jesus is journeying north, away from Galilee, the region in which he had been doing his ministry, and he turns to ask the twelve, as they're going along the road, a summing up. What's the state of things? Who do people say that I am? Now, I can imagine the disciples at this point if I were one of them, at least, I'd be thinking, oh, I'm so glad he's talking about this. He's going to tell us. And we're finally going to get a clear explanation. And so they, they rattle off the various prevailing opinions. Some say John the Baptist, other Elijah, come back from heaven, a resurrected prophet maybe like Jeremiah, or just some old, one more prophet. They, they list out the answers, but they're, they're very terse, and they make it clear they don't know. And they would really love an answer. But Jesus is not yet ready to answer them. Instead of giving an explanation or an answer, he turns on them and asks directly, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And all of a sudden, with those simple words, it no longer is a question of public opinion or of speculation. It's a direct personal confrontation to each disciple. Who do you say that I am? And this question, even though Jesus does not ask it on the road to Caesarea Philippi, 
is still being asked. It's still being addressed to people through the ministry of Jesus' church, through the reading of his scripture, through the witness of his people. On down through the ages, Jesus addresses everyone with the same question, who do you say that I am? And then, and now as then, it doesn't leave you any wiggle room. It is not, who did your parents say that I am? Or what does your, who does your church body say that I am? Or who does your nation say that I am? And it doesn't ask you about your feelings or your hunches either. It's not asking what's going on in here. It's who do you say? There's no retreat to the world of individual private opinion. It's a violent confrontation. And as there were then, so now there are many answers that people have given. Some see Jesus as a teacher, an ethical teacher who taught humanity to love its neighbor and to love its enemies and to live, uh, break the cycle of vengeance by living by forgiveness. Some see him as a philosopher who helped us understand more deeply the relationship between God and man. Some see him as a, a, an expert in management, teaching us how to lead by servant leadership and manipulate people. Or maybe he's one of God's many sons who has been sent to show us how we can become gods ourselves. Or one of my favorites, he's the original socialist. Or he's the, the one who taught us all to be inclusive and to not judge. Or he was the first libertarian who taught us to, uh, the dignity and freedom of every individual to follow his or her conscience. Or he's a therapist who helps us all cope with our impotence and mortality. Or maybe, perhaps more violently, he's just a myth. He's just a myth, a legend made up by oppressed, to, to sedate oppressed masses with promises about pie in the sky. Or on the other side, maybe he's, he's a myth made up by those poor people to enslave their stronger masters with ideas about the first being last and the last being first. All of these answers and more have been given to this question, who do you say that I am, as it ripples down through the ages. But all of them are wrong, because all of them take little bits of the truth about Jesus, and they all fail to take seriously Jesus' own answer to the question. We get a sense for this in the way that the dialogue continues. Peter answers, you're the Christ. The Messiah. It really should be translated Messiah here because the word Messiah is a very clear king word. For, for Israel in this first century who knew its Old Testament, like Peter did, Jesus, Peter is saying that Jesus is Israel's promised king, the one that the prophets said would come to restore the throne of David, to deliver God's people from their outside enemies, and to establish an eternal reign of Israel over all the world. You, Jesus, are the Messiah, Peter says. It's a pretty good answer, right? You'd expect that Jesus maybe gives them a round of applause or says, you got it, thumbs up. But, but Mark just says, he sternly tells them to tell no one. Now why? Why is Jesus still trying to keep it a secret when Peter has just said it so clearly? And the answer is this. Peter's not quite right yet. He's got the right word, Messiah, but he doesn't know what it means. He doesn't know what God's Messiah really is, or who God's Messiah really is. Because in the next verse, Mark tells us, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and the three, after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Mark makes it clear this is the first time his disciples have heard this news. Jesus says it plainly, outright. 
And that doesn't make any sense to any of them. It shocks all of them. That's not the way the Messiah was supposed to work in their minds. And so Peter, again, the representative of all disciples, he, Mark says, he pulls Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. This is such a fascinating encounter that I like to imagine it in different ways. I mean, how do you go from calling Jesus, you are the Messiah, to you are wrong? And so I like to imagine it in a couple different ways. I like to imagine Peter as like a couple different, maybe like the Dr. Phil Peter. Right? He says, so, crucified and resurrected Messiah. How's that working for you, Jesus? Or Inigo Montoyo from The Princess Bride. Messiah. I don't think that word means what you think it means. Or like maybe as a millennial who takes out his phone and says, tweets, crucified Messiah, hashtag, you're doing it wrong. However he does this, however, whatever kind of gentle prodding he tries to give to Jesus, he just tries to indicate to Jesus that that's not what a Messiah is. Because the truth is, is that Jesus' answer has thrust this question, who are you, right back in Peter's face. Because he wasn't expecting a Messiah who could be crucified. None of the disciples were. He was expecting Israel's greatest king ever, who would liberate them from outside oppression, who would establish a reign that would never end, who would liberate God's people from their own guilt and sin by reestablishing the kingdom. And Peter has no room for this kind of Messiah. He has no idea what this would be like. And so this question, right when he gave the answer, you are the Messiah, he's immediately asking again, wait, who are you? But Jesus recognizes in Peter's rebuke, however gentle it was or stern it was, he recognizes that same malevolent spirit that confronted him in the wilderness, or rather that the spirit drove him to confront in the wilderness. Now speaking through the voice of his own disciples, he says, get behind me, Satan. You are setting your mind not on the things of God, but on human things. Human things. Once again, the dark power of Satan has reared its ugly head to confront Jesus and distract him, to pull him off the course his father sent for him by using the lips of his own disciples. And he's not stopped doing this either, has he? He's not stopped putting false answers on our lips as God's people. We haven't ceased to think about Jesus in human terms rather than in terms of God. The problem with all those answers that we explored earlier is not that they are wholly false, although some of them are, but that all of them seek to fit Jesus into our stories. All of them seek to find a place in our world, in our agenda, in our values, in our things for Jesus. They grab a little part of Jesus that they like and ignore the parts they don't like. And maybe we don't rebuke him like Peter, but we still do this. We still try to fit him into the story of consumer guilt for middle-class Americans or into the non-judgmental marshmallow that helps us combat the meanness of religious people. Or we use him to try to inspire revolutions. Or we use him just to teach our kids some how to be nice. The truth that this is a startling lesson brings right in front of us is that the Satan does not need to take the word Jesus or the word Messiah away from you. Doesn't need to get it out of your heart. He doesn't need to make you forget Jesus. All he has to get you to do is domesticate him. To turn Jesus into a hobby, a Sunday morning activity, a national symbol, an, expiring exa an inspiring example, or a bludgeoning tool or a comfort animal. 
As long as Satan can get you to see Jesus as anything other than a crucified and risen Messiah, you are completely harmless. But when you do, when you do actually see Jesus as the crucified and risen Messiah, then everything changes. Everything changes. Because that's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Being a disciple of Jesus is not mere belief in God or belief in a higher power or even a belief that there's a guy named Jesus, or there used to be. It's the confession that Jesus is the crucified and risen Messiah of the world. Being a Christian means confessing Jesus as the crucified and risen Messiah of the world. And that means three things. In the first place, it means that the world's story is God's story. The world's story is God's story, because Peter... The problem is that Peter is thinking he's going to free us from the Romans. He's going to be a king like David. And God's story is, no, I'm going to free you from the reason there are such things as Romans. I'm going to free you from the reason that you're enslaved to them. I'm going to free you from the reason that you're scared of them because they can kill you. I'm going to free you from that same dark power that is speaking through you right now. That's what the cross means. All our piddly little human stories fall short of the cosmic scope of God's intent in Jesus, which is to kill death and to liberate us from sin and from Satan. Everything we think is important is only penultimate. It's only next to last. What's last, what's truly the problem, that's what the cross is there to deal with. So we, if we are disciples of Jesus, call Jesus God's story. Which means all our stories find a, play, find a place in his. The second thing it means is that we embrace the scandal of the cross. The scandal of the cross. See, the, the crucified and risen Jesus, if, you, if you're going to call your Messiah crucified and risen, there, there's a, this is offensive in two different ways. To two different groups of people. It, it's, it's offensive to people like Israel who think that they're going to get this right. Who think that by some kind of religious devotion by upholding the ancient laws, by being liturgically pure, by having all our good works, or by some kind of righteous law-abiding behavior, we can fix the problem. But the scandal of the cross is that, no, it's the religious leaders, Israel's best and brightest, who are going to murder the Messiah. There is nothing you can do. You cannot be who you need to be to fix yourself. You cannot fix this world. You cannot fix the problems that you see everywhere. Because every best effort to fix this winds up only nailing Jesus to the cross. That's the scandal with which it confronts you. So to call Jesus your Messiah in that regard is to say, I am utterly dependent on the grace of God because I can't fix this. I'm utterly dependent on the grace of God and everything I do or feel or say or act to try to fix myself is meaningless. Because his grace alone can fix me. His grace alone that comes as a free gift from a king who was crucified and raised that has liberated me from who I am and all the human things that obsess me. Because if you call him king, you're saying that you are who he says you are. And that he is who he says he is. And so your sin no longer gets to define you nor does your religiosity, nor do your good works, nor does anything else. Your Messiah, crucified and risen, he gets to define you. Your guilt doesn't get to define you. Your shame doesn't get to define you. 
your failures and your collapsed family or whatever else may be ailing you doesn't get to define you. Jesus does because his cross and resurrection are the victory over everything that stands against you. And so if you think you can fix yourself, the cross will always be a stumbling block to you. It makes clear that you are utterly dependent on a free gift of God. But as the text goes on, it brings us to the third thing, which is that this cross is also a scandal to those who, well, are irreligious or who pride themselves on, on being libertines, on saying, you know what, it doesn't matter, sin's not that bad. We shouldn't be judgmental. Because what Jesus then goes on to say is that the cross makes it clear what the path of discipleship looks like. Jesus didn't simply come to die and rise. He came to die and rise and give you the very same spirit that drove him to die and rise. And that same spirit drives you along the same journey. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. See, the crucified Christ makes it clear that not only is salvation a gift of God's complete grace that is utterly free, it has consequences, real, costly consequences. And anyone who would say, well, the gospel's free grace, I don't have to do anything, it doesn't change anything that I do or say or live. So no, it is free, but it has consequences. It means resisting the temptation to entitlement and wealth. It means renouncing your claims of revenge on people who've hurt you. It means suffering maybe the shame or rejection of your culture, or your family perhaps, when they reject Jesus. The cross and resurrection of Jesus make it clear that following him will be difficult and costly. It's a life, as we discussed last week, of spirit-driven combat, where a free gift of grace sends you on a life of costly discipleship. And I can do nothing more with this text then leave and put to you once again that same scandalous and incisive question with which Jesus responds to Peter. Who do you say that Jesus is? Is he your hobby? Your comfort dog? Your tool? Your enabler? Your enemy? Or is he your crucified and risen Messiah? This is not a question that anyone else can answer for you. This is not a topic for speculation or intellectual curiosity. It is a question from the heir of all things, from the, he who is coming to judge the living and the dead. A crucified Jew named Jesus of Nazareth lives right now, and he asks you, who do you say that I am? Amen. This has been a message from Emmaus Church LCMS. We thank you for listening and invite you to find out more by visiting our website at www.emmauspasco.org. That's www.emmauspasco.org.